This podcast includes descriptions of violence and death. Please take care while listening. Monet Carter-Mixon is standing on the sidewalk outside the county city building in downtown Tacoma, where she called a press conference. My face is probably messed up right now because of that mask, but... um... This is the first time she's been in the spotlight in this way. The first time she's spoken to reporters since George Floyd was killed, since her brother Manny's death was ruled a homicide, since she found a video showing Manny struggling with the police. You guys probably already know. You've heard me talk about it. You've probably seen it. But I loved my brother. He was my best friend. Monet isn't alone anymore. She's with family and supporters and her lawyer, James Bible. The Pierce County Sheriff's Office hid this from you. They hid this from everybody in Tacoma. The Tacoma Police Department hid this from you. The mayor's office didn't do the work that they needed to do. The county council members and the city council members have not forced accountability on Pierce County. So now it's up to the people. Monet's gut has been telling her something was wrong from the moment she found out Manny was dead. Now she has some evidence backing up that feeling. Maybe people will finally listen to what she has to say. I'm really, really disappointed and angry with the Pierce County Sheriff's Department, with the Tacoma Police Department, with the Tacoma City Mayor. There's been people within our community that knew about this. They've heard my voice. They've seen my posts on Facebook, if you date back. They've gotten my calls. They've received my emails. And not one time did they offer a condolence. Not one time did they offer of any assistance or any help. If it wasn't for me and Manny's friend screaming at the top of our lungs, and George Floyd dying, this would have got brushed under the rug. Tacoma needs to pay attention to these politicians. They're all complicit in this. They all know what happened with my brother. All the officials working in the county building right behind her, maybe they can't hear her, but the reporters standing in front of her can. And she's pissed that they didn't look into Manny's death sooner or question the police harder. I was just like, you know, I told you so. You know, I sent you messages, sent you clips, like all, but because it wasn't relevant with what the spin was in this news cycle, like, you didn't pay attention, and you should have. You shouldn't treat the police like you work with them or like you guys are friends or buddy-buddy and you're doing them a favor, they're doing you a favor, because you should always be looking at them like, you know, they have something to hide. I'm done. I don't want to talk to anybody. I want answers from my brother, like yesterday. You get the answers, then we can talk. Monet had done all this work searching for answers about what happened to her brother. So what about the people who were actually in charge of investigating Manny's death? What were they doing? Emails, records, and interviews with people involved, they tell a story about what was happening behind the scenes while Monet was in the dark. They reveal how a sister pushed back against a pro-forma system. How the story of Manny's death buried in the newspaper almost went unheard. From KNKX Public Radio and the Seattle Times, this is The Walk Home. Episode three, not saying anything. 
As soon as the press conference ended, Monet's family and her lawyer headed straight to the Pierce County Medical Examiner's office. They still hadn't seen a copy of the autopsy report. They would only let one person in. That was uh, Marcia, Manny's mother. And they would only accept exact change for the medical examiner report. You can't write a check. You can't give a card. You have to give the exact change. So at one point, Marcia had come out, and we were figuring out our pennies, our nickels, our quarters, our dimes. We were probably out in the parking lot for maybe an hour and a half for something that should have taken a few minutes. So getting that autopsy report wasn't easy. And before they were even rummaging around for change to pay for it, this critical document had been sitting in a pile of paperwork inside that office for weeks. To understand how that happened, you have to rewind three months to March 4th, 2020, the day Manny's body got to the medical examiner's office. I could always tell when there was something exciting or different happening because the parking lot only holds like eight or ten cars. And on an average day, I could always find a parking spot without any effort. But this day, there were lots of cars in the parking lot. That means we have visitors. Carol Mitchell was heading into work. She had an office in the same building as the medical examiner, who reported to her. At the time, Carol was high up in the county, the only Black woman on the executive team. She was recruited to be the county's senior counsel for justice, overseeing all the departments that touch the criminal justice system. She was surprised to learn that included the medical examiner. This is like, what the hell is that going to be? I gotta go, I gotta go to a place where there are dead bodies in the basement. I was in I didn't even know what that would require of me. But I wasn't scared. Medical examiners are a really important part of the justice system. When someone dies unexpectedly, they figure out how it happened. Their decisions can make or break a case when legal questions come up. Pierce County's medical examiner handles a lot of cases, and Carol often sat in on the meetings about them. They were so graphic that it was sometimes hard for me personally to look at the photographs and hear the circumstances and see the conditions that people were living in. You know, it would just be heartbreaking to me. And I had seen a lot of black and brown males coming through. Um, I'd also seen a lot of people affected by addiction, substance use, uh, fentanyl and alcohol-related deaths. So I had a rule uh, with uh, the medical examiner at the time. Hey, what's the case of the week? Which cases do you think I need to alert the executive team to so that if something shows up in the paper about a death investigation that the police are involved in, that's not the first time that the executive hears about it. The case of the week in early March 2020 was Manny Ellis. County investigators were there for his autopsy. Carol struggled to find parking that day because their vehicles crowded the small lot. That's when the medical examiner told her that he thought Manny's case could implicate law enforcement. What he said was the case of the week might very well be um, have some media attention to it 
because a a young African-American man had died, and there was some question as to whether or not a spit mask, which is what he called it, might have been a contributing factor. Okay, a spit mask or a spit hood is like a net that police put over someone's head to stop them from spitting or biting. It sort of looks like something you'd see a bad guy in a movie use on a person they're kidnapping. There's a warning label saying not to use it on someone in distress. In some cases involving people who died in police custody around the country, a spit mask was used. When Manny's body got to the medical examiner's office, a spit mask with blood stains was part of the evidence that came with him. It looked to him, and he's he was, you know, I mean, he is a very experienced forensic pathologist and has done many, many, many death investigations and autopsies. And so, you know, he believed that he was seeing signs that there might be a homicide and that the spit mask might have been a contributing factor. The medical examiner still had to wait weeks for toxicology results. But Carol was hearing this might be an explosive story involving police. She wanted to give her boss, County Executive Bruce Dammeyer, a heads up as soon as possible. So we had one of those in-the-hallway quick huddles where I said, hey, this is probably going to be an issue that's going to arise. You're probably going to see some media coverage about this. And it was just one of those things that, you know, they sort of checked off as, okay, that's Carol's report for the day and moved on to the next thing. Not a lot of questions about it. Um, Just stay on top of it. I remember those words, stay on top of it. At that point, we thought it was just Tacoma, so we didn't really have, the county didn't really have to be terribly concerned about it internally. So a spokesman for the Pierce County Sheriff's Department had already told a newspaper reporter that Manny probably died from excited delirium. At the same time, the top official in Pierce County knew within days of Manny's death that it might have been a homicide at the hands of Tacoma police. A few miles away from the medical examiner's office at a different county building, investigators with the sheriff's department were just starting their investigation into the Tacoma police. This is reference case number 20063-02251. It's March 6, 2020, 11.20 hours. Three days after Manny died, a couple days after the medical examiner did his autopsy, the sheriff's department started interviewing the officers involved. We're currently at the Parkland Spanaway Precinct. This is referenced an incident that occurred on March 3rd of 2020 in the area of 96 and Ainsworth Avenue South. Over the course of a few days, four Tacoma police officers walked into an interview room One by one, they told their version of what happened. Up first was Christopher Burbank, who goes by Shane. We were uh, in Ulstercon's car that night. It's a marked unit, number 2773. We had, uh, we had just cleared a traffic stop around 96th and A Street. Matthew Collins is Burbank's partner. They were the first ones to encounter Manny that night. Both officers are white and we came to a stoplight, a red light at uh, 96 in Ainsworth. I was stopped on facing westbound, and I looked over, and there was some sort of 
disturbance happening where there was a black male in the center of the intersection. His back was faced to me and there was a vehicle turning west onto 96th Street from Ainsworth. The uh, vehicle started to proceed through the intersection to make that westbound turn and the uh, suspect kind of ran, I guess out of nowhere, I just recall seeing him in the intersection in the roadway run up in front and kind of block that vehicle by waving uh, his hands and stop that vehicle. And he was at the passenger door working the handle and the vehicle was kind of trying to turn left, slowly move around him without hitting him and then took off. So at this point, I didn't know what we were reviewing. I didn't know if this was a domestic violence thing. Maybe this guy got kicked out of a car. Maybe he's trying to carjack it. I don't, I don't know. And we're not sure of um, any description of the car that you remember. I don't remember at all. I just remember he went directly to the front passenger door and started pulling at the door handle. And I know he was carrying a jug of water in one hand and some other items in his other hand. But at this point now, this gentleman's just standing in the middle of the intersection and just right out in the middle. So I rolled my window down and I said, hey, come over here, what's going on? I noticed that the uh, suspect, he was extremely sweaty. He seemed to be very kind of hypervigilant. Um, he's talking quick and he was just kind of, and he stated something to the effect of, I'm having a bad day, I need some help and I have warrants. And it was very quick, he said that. And I said, okay, we'll go sit on the curb and I'll call this out, okay, I'll come talk to you. I pick up the mic, I'm about to call out, you know, I'm at nine, six names worth of one. And I immediately realized something's wrong. The guy is walking around the car and he's just fixated in on my partner in the passenger seat. He's just kind of staring at him. He's really close to the car. I started to put the window down and I told us to tell the suspect, hey, can you just go over to the sidewalk? We'll pull over, get out of traffic and talk to you. Um, and he just like still speaking very quickly. He just he said something to the fact that I just I'm really hot. I'm, I'm having I just need some help and I just kind of sit down for a couple days. I need to cool down. And the window was being halfway down and about that time, I, I don't know exactly why. He just looked at me from the, uh, I was still seated in the passenger seat. He said something to the effect that instead I might just punch you in the fucking face. And he starts to roll the window up and the guy starts punching the window. And then there's like a struggle over the door. And so at that point I dropped the mic and I immediately run around to try and get control of this guy. And my intended purpose is to take him to the ground and put him in cuffs. I mean, he's out of control. He's trying to assault my partner. But he turns to me as soon as I get about to the front of the car, runs at me, and he grabs me by my vest. I'm trying to grab him and he lifts me off my feet and throws me on my back in the middle of the street. I left my feet. And it was about at this moment, I knew something was up. This guy who had superhuman strength. I recall Officer Collins getting out of the vehicle and going around the front of the vehicle and approaching uh, the suspect. Um, as soon as I realized that he had focused on Con uh, Officer Collins and was probably about to attack him or start fighting him, I uh, used my uh, door to actually door check him and hit him with the door to draw his attention away from Officer Collins and kind of divert him away from that. And from, from this point on, it's, it's just a melee. It's just wild. There's fists flying. I run in and I, I'm, I'm a grappler by background, so I immediately grab him and I try and take him to the ground. At some point, I end up on top of him. He's just swinging wildly at me. 
grabbing at me and he's like growling and and just making like kind of animal noises not saying anything and this guy's just kind of screaming and growling there's no verbal anything from uh the suspect at all at this point no words just no just and screaming and growling on this night two other officers were on patrol nearby one of them is timothy rankin he's asian american we heard on the radio what sounded um, like mic clicks. Um, at first, when I first heard the mic clicks, I thought it was a, you know, an accidental uh, mic click, like someone accidentally um, hit their mic. Rankin's partner, Messiah Ford, is in the car with him. Ford is black. So we start going south on Pacific from 84th, and we're getting additional mic clicks, mic clicks. They have a bad feeling. Then they hear Burbank yell his location. I'm not six His voice, I had never heard it in that, in that tone of voice before. Um, it sounded super stressed, um, almost kind of in like a panic kind of voice. So that immediately um, did not sit right with me and my partner. Uh, immediately activated my uh, mercy lights and sirens, flipped a U-turn. And what, like, right about we get to about like 30, maybe 40 feet away, I see like dark figures. Cause like, here's a patrol car and they're kind of like over here in front of the patrol car. I was like, there they are. They're in front of the patrol car. They're fighting with someone. So my partners were bringing the car to a screeching halt. And before the car even stops, my door flies open. I jump out of the car and start running over towards them. There was a black male subject that was proned out on the ground, um, on his stomach. Um, Officer Burbank was on top of his upper torso, um, straddling his upper torso, um, almost like he was riding a horse uh, with both of his hands pressed down on his upper body. Um, and then I saw Officer uh, Collins trying to secure both his legs. And what I see as I'm approaching them is I see this guy like lifting up, like Shane's like on his back or Shane, but Officer Burbank's on his back and Officer Collins has his legs and he's like pushing them off. I didn't even think he was like in handcuffs yet. Rankin and Ford said they helped restrain Manny while they waited for medics. They told investigators a similar story about how Manny was acting, that he was thrashing around, that he wouldn't let up, that nobody could get him under control. And there was one other detail, something that didn't come up in the interviews with the two officers who first encountered Manny. Um, so once I was uh, seated on the subject's back, um, placing my weight, like distributing my weight evenly across his torso. Um, one of the things I thought was really weird was the first time I actually heard this subject even speak. And the first thing he said to me was, uh, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. Um, but he said it in a very, not in a distressed voice, in almost a very calm, normal voice, um, which I thought was super weird. Um, uh, I, I remember telling the individual, I was like, if you're talking to me, you can breathe just fine. Sheriff's investigators listened to the officer's stories. At the same time, 
records show they were looking into Manny. Their focus was on investigating Manuel Ellis and not about things that could have shed light on what happened at 96th and Ainsworth on the night he died. Patrick Malone is an investigative reporter with the Seattle Times. They got a search warrant for his house. You know, and they got that search warrant on the basis of uh, naming Ellis as a suspect, third-degree assault of police officers. Well, you know, there are legal questions around whether that search warrant ever should have been authorized because you can't charge this man. He's dead. He's not really even the subject of this investigation. All of this was pretty typical for how these sorts of cases go when one department investigates another neighboring one for a killing. But it wasn't supposed to be typical. Right before Manny died, a new state law called Initiative 940 went into effect. It set new rules for how police investigate deadly force with the goal of making these investigations more independent. There was a lot of consternation from police departments. What are these going to look like? They, you know, frankly, had had a large measure of control over uh, how these investigations were going to go up until that point. And it was a great reassurance to law enforcement that, you know, the status quo would kind of continue. But that was disrupted by I-940. So there were a lot of concerns, a lot of worries, and there was a way of doing business. They were comfortable with doing business that way, and they kept doing business that way, even after voters in the legislature told them not to. Basically, I-940 was designed to prevent police from investigating themselves. But something the new law didn't account for was how intertwined these law enforcement agencies can be, like Tacoma Police and the Pierce County Sheriff's Department. There's a reason why neighboring departments, you know, are often littered with inherent conflicts of interest. They're often witnesses in each other's cases. They often have jurisdictional overlap on certain crimes. I think, you know, they're very reliant on each other's trustworthiness. Uh, They need to preserve each other's images in order to be successful themselves. There's often a lot of uh, revolving door between these departments, leaving one going to another. And they often respond to the same calls together. Back at the medical examiner's office, there was a lot of drama going on. Dr. Thomas Clark was the medical examiner back then. He was still waiting for Manny's toxicology results. At the same time, he was dealing with a lot of his own problems. We have been following a growing list of complaints involving the Pierce County medical examiner. He's under fire from employees and the families of people he examined after they died. State regulators decided to step in by opening their own investigation into Clark's practice. Clark was retiring after his staff filed complaints that he created a toxic workplace. Some even questioned his judgment on cases. For months, there's been turmoil inside that office. This embattled medical examiner is stepping down. Settlements have been reached in a long-running... Carol Mitchell, the county official overseeing the office, she liked Clark. She thought he was good at his job. But the people above her wanted to create some distance between the medical examiner and the staff. Clark was ordered to work off-site... So couriers were bringing important paperwork back and forth, slowing everything down. And Clark wasn't available to families, including Manny's, something that's usually part of the medical examiner's job. We would have reached out to them, and I would have reached out to them, and we would have set up an opportunity to have a conversation early on. We didn't do that. We would have told them what to expect in terms of timing, how long things take, the tox screens and how long that all takes. 
so that it would have managed their expectations for how quickly they would get a final death certificate and a final explanation of what happened. And so they couldn't get the kind of information and support that a family under any other circumstances would have got. When the toxicology results arrived in early May 2020, they showed Manny had a lot of meth in his system when he died. That was kind of a shock to people close to him. Manny had a history of using drugs, but he was living at a sober home where he had to stay clean. He had been passing regular drug tests. In the end, though, the medical examiner stuck with what his gut told him on day one, that Manny died by homicide. Clark concluded that Manny suffocated as a result of physical restraint by police. His report says the spit mask was possibly the most important factor in Manny's death. This was one of Clark's final tasks before he retired, before a new medical examiner took over. So the report got lost in the shuffle and sat for three weeks before most people, including sheriff's investigators, even knew what was in it. By the time the news got out, the world was reeling over the killing of George Floyd. This report about a black man killed by Tacoma police, it fanned the flames. The timing of this autopsy announcement could not have been worse, but that's what you get when you sit on it for two, three weeks. You don't get to pick your timing. That delay, while painful for Ellis's mom and sister to have to learn this way about it, also had some practical effects, uh, such as showing that the Pierce County Sheriff's investigators were sort of asleep at the wheel, you know, for weeks. The autopsy results are in. They hadn't bothered to check with the medical examiner. And some of the people in charge were not happy to be reading about this case for the first time in the newspaper. Right after the news broke, County Council Member Marty Campbell sent a pointed email to the executive and the sheriff. Gentlemen, I'm stunned by what I have read in the paper and seen on TV around the Ellis investigation. I would like some follow-up information. One, when did Pierce County take over investigation of the case? Two, what have been the reasons for delay? Three, with more specifics, why is there a delay from the medical examiner to deliver findings? Four, are there additional cases Pierce County is investigating and are any of them delayed? Respectfully, Marty Campbell. So, you know, we're starting to see the first outrage within some of the governmental entities about this and... You know, this is three months after the fact, and these are corners of the county. You know, how are we going to find things out as the media or as citizens if even the council members are in the dark about this? People across county departments were scrambling to gather information. Many of them were coming into this cold with a lot more questions than answers. Monet, on the other hand, had already found a witness and the video that witness had recorded, a video no one at the county had gone looking for until Monet released it to the public. And Monet was about to uncover something else. Support for The Walk Home and KNKX comes from movetotacoma.com. Movetotacoma.com is a neighborhood guide, a blog, and a podcast to help people in Tacoma, Pierce County, and beyond find their place in the city of destiny. More information at movetotacoma.com. 
Race might be a hot topic right now, but for so many of us, talking about race is nothing new. On the Code Switch podcast from NPR, we go beyond the headlines and we go deep. Listen now. Hey, Kari, how much time would you say we've spent on this podcast? Every day for eight months, plus like all the time I've spent lying in bed thinking about it. (laughs) With these kinds of stories that are very detailed and very sensitive, it takes a ton of time and energy to get it right. Support from our listeners is what lets us spend all this time chasing down facts, seeking out different perspectives, building relationships with the people we interview, and just basically agonizing over every single word. Exactly. You can make more projects like this possible by signing up to give monthly to local public media and KNKX. Go to knkx.org to get started. And thanks. City leaders are tense and county leaders are tense that Tacoma's going to burn. It was a guard the windows situation for leaders in Pierce County and Tacoma. They did not want to be on CNN. They didn't want to be on there for the reasons that Seattle was getting on Fox News and all these national sort of uh, outlets. I think the foremost worry was for downtown storefronts and not for finding out what had happened to Manuel Ellis. The county had an emergency communications center staffed mostly by law enforcement. It was originally designed for monitoring terrorism. At that time, COVID was at the top of their radar. But that changed once Manny's case got more attention. The same day that it was announced that Ellis's death was a homicide, its priorities changed to focus on protests and mining information about what could happen, who's organizing rallies, where are they going to be, what kind of numbers are we talking about, uh, what's their motive, are they here to talk about Ellis, are they here to talk about Floyd. There were planes flying over, conducting surveillance, and there comes a moment where Tacoma Action Collective sort of was organizing a a campaign of phone calls to put pressure on Pierce County to take this investigation seriously. Time was running out, you know. And uh, within seven minutes of them posting that on social media, it had gone through the chain of of command in this uh, fusion center built to identify terrorists. And they had forwarded an intel briefing to the desk of uh, Bruce Dammeyer, the county executive, within seven minutes, less than seven minutes after this post hit. So once they were on scene, they were gathering intel and sharing that up to the fusion center level as well. License plates of cars that were there, which members of the media were present. When the Ellis family was showing up at rallies, who among their supporters is present? In these emails, I see photographs of license plates. I see photographs of groups of people. I see things that are, you know, uh, very up close and personal police surveillance of the people that are out there calling for the police to do a better job. This was part of their approach to keeping track of the of the protests. They were any and everybody attached to any and everybody that was involved in any kind of a protest against about Manny. Facebook pages, Twitter accounts, all social media was subject to being looked at by uh, county officials. 
and being reported back, which probably means they were surveilling my emails or my Facebook page too, or my Twitter page, right? Because I definitely was expressing myself. Here you are, three months into an investigation where the Pierce County Sheriff's Department couldn't be bothered to get out and find the eyewitnesses to this because they were so busy looking into Manuel Ellis's life and the activities of his family and their supporters uh, that, you know, they're on top of it when Tacoma Action Collective posts on Twitter and, you know, ring the alarms all the way up to the highest office in the county. But that time wasn't being spent kind of getting to the bottom of the task at hand, which was what happened on the night Manuel Ellis died. But Monet still had her attorney, James Bible, chasing another lead. It was about a neighbor near the spot where Manny died, 96th and Ainsworth. Uh, One thing that she had was a ring communication from, I think it was ring number 24. She had been combing through the uh, ring communities. Remember that? Monet saw someone posting anonymously on a mobile app about police activity the night her brother died. And I remember it was Ring 24 that she said had written something to the effect of they just killed that man around the same date, same time, and near the same area where Manny was murdered. I canvassed the scene, too, and there was this house that had all these signs on it, said things like... uh, The whole world is watching. We see you. And I was thinking instantly that person definitely saw something because you don't start putting that stuff up around your whole house unless you saw something that shocks your soul and conscience. It turns out that neighbor did have a doorbell camera on the porch across the street. You can't see much in the footage from that night. Some lights flashing in the distance, the people who live at the house gawking at the scene. But the audio is pretty clear. And a warning, it's hard to listen to. That person yelling, it's Sarah McDowell, the witness who stopped her car and recorded that first cell phone video. And the other voice, it's Manny. A minute and 40 seconds into this video, Manny cries out. The most surprising and devastating information that came from this are Manny's words, I can't breathe, sir. And to show, have shown that level of respect to the people that are killing him in an attempt to, uh, in an attempt to show that he's not the dangerous one, is just devastating. Everything changed in an instant. The story that had basically been. The only story out there and the story that the community had no choice but to accept because it didn't have an alternative narrative had just been turned on its ear by these eyewitness videos. And, uh, you know, these cameras really made the difference. They told us what really happened as opposed to what we had been told about what happened. It was a moment 
that just brought all corners of what this country was talking about at the top of its lungs right in front of your eyes. It was police thinking we're doing what we have to do. It was a man begging for his life. And it was a bystander saying, don't, this isn't necessary. And so in a way, that video was kind of a microcosm for what was happening in this country right then. The two officers, Burbank and Collins, who first encountered Manny and fought with him, they said they couldn't make out anything Manny was saying before he died. No words, just screaming and growling. The other two, who showed up later, Rankin and Ford, they did hear Manny speak. They remember him saying he couldn't breathe. But the fact that a video captured Manny saying those words so clearly, it was a shock to the public, to everyone who was watching the case by that point. And the Pierce County Sheriff's Department, they knew about this video the whole time. About six and a half minutes into it, you see someone in a police uniform standing on the porch talking to the residents about their doorbell camera. You had on your phone, or is it on a your app, or you down right now? Oh, they are? The panel's right there. You kick the door open, turn the lights on. Sure, that'd be great. It's Officer Messiah Ford. After firefighters arrived and started working to revive Manny that night, Ford went looking for security cameras. He saw several people looking on across the street, and he told investigators with the sheriff's department what happened next. And I was like, um, so I noticed you have a doorbell camera. Do you think it captured anything? They're like, ah, we don't know. I was like, would I be able to look at it? And then uh, one of the homeowners invited me in to look at the surveillance, the surveillance footage. They had the video. They were aware. And um, that, I think, is maybe one of the more abusive things that you can do to a family <laughs> is to say we're going to wipe out and destroy the memory of your loved one by saying all these horrible things about him when we know it's not true and we actually possess the information. It wasn't speculative what Monet was saying. Um, there was actual evidence in possession of Pierce County and Tacoma about... Uh, what had actually happened. The people who were in charge of figuring out what happened to Manny, they learned from a reporter that his death was ruled a homicide. They didn't go looking for that witness or find the video she recorded, at least not for months. Monet found that. And investigators knew, or at least they should have known, that a doorbell camera captured Manny begging for his life. By the way, that car those two officers claim Manny was messing with before they stopped him, investigators never found that either. Nobody has. Three months after their investigation started, detectives with the Pierce County Sheriff's Department were supposed to present their findings to the prosecuting attorney, Mary Robnett. She would decide whether to charge any of the Tacoma officers. That meeting never happened. Carol Mitchell says the reason why was a surprise to most people at the county, even the ones in charge. June 10th, I still remember that day. I think that was the day 
that uh, Mary Robinette said, hey, we've got to turn this over, right? We can't, we can't do the investigation because one of our Pierce County deputies we've discovered was involved. I was like, oh, shit, you got to be fucking kidding me. Just a few days ago, Governor Inslee was ready to let Pierce County Sheriff's investigators take the lead in the death of Manuel Ellis in Tacoma Police custody. But that changed when he learned a Pierce County deputy was also on scene. We are now working to determine who will conduct the state's uh, independent investigation. The Pierce County Sheriff's Department investigated Manny's death for more than three months, even though one of their own was at the scene. And investigators knew from the very beginning because the day after Manny was killed, that deputy told them he was there. Can you go ahead and uh, pronounce and spell your full name for the recording? Gary Sanders, G-A-R-Y-S-A-N-D-E-R-S. Okay. Detective Sergeant Gary Sanders works for the Pierce County Sheriff's Department. Not only was he on the scene in the moments before Manny died, he helped restrain him. When I first got there and came on the scene, they were just handcuffing him. Okay. And then they said something about the hobble, and I saw the hobble get wrapped around one foot, and then that's when I assisted with the other foot. And, then... and about how long was that struggle after you arrived? Approximately two minutes. It wasn't until after people started paying attention that anyone at Pierce County said anything about this conflict of interest. The sheriff didn't know about it. Neither did the prosecuting attorney at least not until the day she canceled that briefing about the investigation. Washington's governor, Jay Inslee, announced the state would take over. It is a little surprising why that was not apparently uh, reported or, or discovered by the, the sheriff's uh, investigation. And, and why that is uh, seems to be surprising. And what you're witnessing is an effort by us to make this right. And it's not acceptable to us to have an investigation that is in any way flawed. Uh, the Attorney General has also raised serious concerns about the Pierce County Sheriff's Office apparent failure to comply with the requirements of Initiative 940 that mandates an independent investigation. Monet's attorney, James Bible, says the Sheriff's Department probably didn't count on anyone paying any attention, at least not the way Monet did. They didn't think a single mom of, I want to say, five kids could possibly impact their powerful information machine. They didn't think that that could happen. They didn't think that Monet, with a baby in one hand and a bullhorn in the other, could get everybody in the city of Tacoma, Pierce County, and many around the nation to actually care about Manuel Ellis's life. And they were wrong. I'm very confident we are going to figure out a way to have a very independent, professional, thorough investigation and a very independent prosecutorial decision because it's absolutely vital that we do this. You can't overstate how important this is in any case but particularly now, this family deserves independence, and the, the state does as well. I want him to know that he was important. I think they thought he wasn't important.
Pierce County Executive Bruce Dammeyer and Pierce County Sheriff Ed Troyer declined to be interviewed about how the county handled this investigation. They also didn't respond to detailed questions about what happened during that time. They say they can't talk about the details of the case while legal issues are still playing out. That includes a wrongful termination lawsuit from Carol Mitchell, who was fired in the summer of 2020. She's accusing county leaders of retaliation for speaking out about what she describes as a hostile and discriminatory workplace. The county denies those claims. On the next episode of The Walk Home. The party never started, girl, until Manny got there. (laughs) It was the first love of my life. I was never so crazy about somebody. My dad just, like, started, like, beating on him. We look back at Manny's walk through life, all the systems he was wrapped up in. Hopefully, during this sanction time, Mr. Ellis actually starts taking the steps towards living a drug-free lifestyle. We have all these violations in 2015 and 2016. It was generally police saw him somewhere and wanted to go see what was up with this guy. And how everything that happened over the years brought him face-to-face with those officers at 96th and Ainsworth. The evening of October 18th, we're hosting a conversation about the Ellis case in Tacoma. We'll have more details to come, but for now, mark the date on your calendar. The Walk Home is a production of KNKX Public Radio and The Seattle Times. It's written and produced by me, Kari Plogue, Myowa Ina, and Will James. Additional reporting by Seattle Times senior investigative reporter Patrick Malone. Our editor is Tierra Darnell. Our executive producers are Florangela Davila and Jonathan Martin. Bethany Denton is our mix engineer. Music comes from Tacoma artists Will Jordan, Marcel E.C. Augustin, and Quincy Q. Henry. Our cover art is by Rotator Creative. Additional audio comes from the Seattle Times videography team. Research by Miyoko Wolf. Our website is by Parker Miles Blome. Kara Coleman is our online managing editor. And special thanks to the Ellis family for sharing their story 